Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Всі, хто може повернутися в Україну, повертайтеся. On Saturday, President Volodymyr Zelensky once again urged Ukrainians abroad to return home and to take up arms against Russia. And from all corners of Europe, men and women have answered that call. It's my duty, you know, to my country, and it's in war now, so I'd say I have to go there and do what I can. I can't mm, just stay in Poland and uh, let Russians <laughs> destroy our independence, destroy our cities, kill our citizens, kill our children, kill our elderly people. I am scared to go there. The closer you get there, the, the more scared you are, but it is what it is. I'm Sarah Kapalik and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, as Ukrainians take up arms to defend their nation, how much longer can Kyiv hold out? Lara Marlowe is the Irish Times Paris correspondent and she recently joined a group of Ukrainians making the long journey from France across Central Europe back home to Ukraine. Lara, you've spent the past 26 hours on a bus travelling from Paris to the town of Przemysl on Poland's southeastern border with Ukraine. Can you tell me a little bit about the people that you met on that bus? Yes, of course. Uh, well, there were, for most of the trip, there was myself and four Ukrainian men. Uh, two of the men are brothers who actually own the, the minibus. Uh, and they have a business going back and forth between Ukraine and Paris, except that by going home, they were in Paris when the war broke out. And by going home, they know that they will not be able to leave again. So they're losing their livelihood. And I said, why are you going back? And they said, because our families are there. And they said, family and country are the only things that really matter. Uh, the two passengers along with me uh, were both uh, workers. One is a welder. They're both called Petro and the other is a construction worker. So, Lara, one of those Petros, you spoke to him, you interviewed him in French. I'm on the Polish-Ukrainian border uh, with, with Petro. Petro, tu peux dire ton nom? What did he tell you about himself and why he had decided to travel to Ukraine? He said he didn't have any choice. He said a lot of his friends had already joined. His people and his family are in Ukraine and he just wouldn't have felt right staying in France. Tu as vu des guerres? 
no. Does Petro have any experience of war or fighting? Well, he did two years of military service in the former Soviet Union. He said, I know how to use a Kalashnikov, no problem. You also asked at the end whether Petro was scared of dying. What did he say? He said, a little bit, uh, but I have no choice. It was kind of an emotional roller coaster. I mean, these men were two, the two Petros, they were very calm about it. They were apprehensive. But they were resigned and they just kept saying, this is what we have to do. Uh, we stopped at a truck stop in Luxembourg where there were a half dozen minibuses like ours. And there I interviewed a man in the parking lot called uh, Nikola, which was also the name of one of our drivers. And he had fought the Russians in Donbass in 2014 and 2015. And he was, he was very funny. He was joking about it. He was laughing, but he but the language was very strong. And he said, Russians are pigs. We, we, we're going to kill them. We're going to kill the Russians. So this is the kind of language that you're hearing. Uh, another very striking thing about the journey was the reliance on smartphones. All, all four men had their phones on all the time, including the driver uh, while he was driving. They were watching speeches by Zelensky. There was an appeal from a young Ukrainian soldier to the Belarusians not to fight them. There was a comedian uh, using obscene language about the Russians. Um, there was a, a spoof that they, they thought was hilariously funny of a hunter saying, well, hunting season opens on March 1st against all savage beasts. And they, he obviously meant the Russians. Um, so, and then there was real news mixed in with this as well. Um, just before they dropped me off on the Polish border, uh, there was a man came on and they said, that's Putin. I reckon, you know, they said they, they would know Putin anywhere. And he said, well, the war is over. We're pulling our troops out. And for just a split second, they almost believed him. There were smiles all around. And then the news came on that this was this was a, a lookalike and it, it was fake. So it was up and down and up and down all the way. So, Lara, what about the town of Przemysle? You arrived there on Monday afternoon and this Polish border town is now filling up with Ukrainian refugees. What is the atmosphere like there? Um, it's a little bit tense. There were uh, there was a Polish army unit patrolling the street, and the area around the train station has been cordoned off. Uh, and in front of the train station, there's piles of uh, clothing and bedding, and what looks like you know the sort of things that refugees always have with them. When I arrived at my hotel, there were a half dozen people trying to get rooms. Fortunately, I had booked my hotel and I had a room that which they were holding for me, but I saw them turn away about a half dozen people. Uh, so I think there are a lot of people arriving homeless. I know that there is quite a big relief effort and there are people inside the train station distributing food and supplies to these refugees arriving en masse. Uh, from Ukraine, although only women and children are being allowed out, no adult men are being allowed to to leave uh, Ukraine, of course. Lara, you're a seasoned war reporter. You've covered many conflicts during your career. How does this situation compare to previous escalations that you've seen, both on a geopolitical level and what you're starting to see regarding refugees arriving? 
to obviously the conflict it reminds me of most is the Georgia war in 2008 uh, because Georgians and Ukrainians are both former republics of the Soviet Union and the people are, are not totally unlike each other, although they speak different languages, of course. Uh, and also the fact that the Russians are the aggressors and the invaders in both wars. But the jo Georgian war was on a, a much smaller scale. It lasted for five days and the, the Russians did bite off 20% of Georgia, which they still hold until today. But the scale of it was nothing, nothing comparable. I mean, basically, the West just kind of rolled over when the Russians invaded Georgia. There was a, a ceasefire, a negotiated ceasefire, and then the Russians didn't even observe the, team, the terms of the ceasefire. And the Americans who'd been egging the Georgians, Georgians on didn't really do anything. This is different. Uh, when you see the international reaction, uh, the European Union, which is taking decisions at a, at a furious rate, uh, in a way it never has before, decisions to close their airspace, to close the SWIFT uh, banking system to Russian banks, to sh the decision to give weapons to Ukraine, that's really amazing. And this is the first time the Euro European Union has ever given weapons as a political entity. So this, this is a big change. And the other thing that, that is not like any war I've been in before is that there is, however small, a risk of nuclear war. I mean, uh, Putin announced while I was in the minibus uh, with my traveling companions who were uh, well, they're worried about everything, but this worried them too. Uh, Putin announced that he's put uh, Russia's nuclear deterrence on high alert. Uh, what does this mean? Does this mean he, he's thinking about using nuclear weapons? Certainly, if he went after uh, the Baltic states or Poland, as many people fear he might if, if he succeeds in Ukraine, NATO would be obliged to come to their rescue. And that could certainly mean a nuclear war. And Putin has alluded to the possibility of nuclear war. So that's on a scale like nothing I, I've seen before. I mean, even in the Iraq war, which was probably the biggest war I covered until now, um, nobody was talking about using nuclear weapons. So that, that's the most disturbing aspect of it. Coming up, as a Russian convoy bears down on Kyiv, how prepared is the city for a full-scale attack? Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Dan McLaughlin is our correspondent in Ukraine, and he spent the weekend in lockdown Kiev as the Russian military bombarded the outskirts of the city. I spoke to him on Tuesday afternoon. Dan, Ukraine's capital city was under curfew for 39 hours over the weekend. What was the atmosphere like when that curfew was lifted on Monday morning? Well, people woke up with a sense of relief for several reasons. Firstly, you know, the curfew was over. Secondly, they looked out of their windows and and central Kyiv and and all regions of Kyiv really were still uh, intact. There hadn't been any major attack on the city itself. People were relieved and people were wondering what they could do, you know, quickly because they didn't know when the situation was going to change again. Immediately looking around for any supplies that they needed, figuring out, okay, where can we get, you know, water, pasta, uh, buckwheat, which people generally buy here as a, as a kind of staple. It's known as sort of the staple in times of emergency, probably for centuries. You know, people get buckwheat into the house and they know that, you know, they've got something that they can rely on. It will, it will keep for months and it will keep them going. I mean, it was incredibly strange to be doing that in, in a, a, this beautiful European capital of three million people, which is usually so vibrant, so lively, so much going on. I mean, that completely changed overnight. And people just started to think of the essential things, think of survival, but also crucially think of, help, of helping each other out. I mean, that's something that's been so striking in the East and here. They haven't been treating each other badly. They haven't been, uh, there hasn't been, uh, you know, terrible panic or crush. People are generally trying to stay calm, but um, obviously deal as best they can with the situation and prepare themselves as quickly as possible for whatever may be coming. Before that long weekend curfew came into effect on Saturday, you were out and about on the street speaking to some of the men and women who are taking up arms to fight the Russians. How did they describe how they're feeling, particularly people who work in tech or people who work in business or restaurants, whatever it is they do, who never could have imagined holding a gun before. Yeah, that is an extraordinary thing. And you even see, you know, M- MPs like deputies, young young parliamentary deputies who imagine having a career in politics and um, trying to reform the country and take it towards Europe. They're, they're posting pictures of themselves with Kalashnikovs and going to the front line and things. It's, it's incredible. Um, but of course, you know, they're saying we, you know, none of them wanted this. None of them wanted to even think that this was possible, that Russians could come like this to, to Kiev and to places like Kharkiv and all over the country now. But they just say, this is all we can do. I mean, in a sense, there's, I mean, I'm sure they're, they're scared. They have to, they must be scared on, on some level as to what might happen. But at the same time, it's almost like, well, this is the only path that exists for them now because they don't want to live under occupation. They want to live in a free country, a free Ukraine. And so they see that this is what they have to do. You know, there's no point for them, they think, hiding. They have to join the forces um, and they have to do what they can to look after their district, to defend their city, whatever it might be. Before last week, you'd spent quite a bit of time in Kharkiv, which is Ukraine's eastern second city and which is currently under bombardment. Now, we've started hearing that dozens have been killed and hundreds injured since Russia started firing at civilian areas. Dan, what have you heard from your contacts in the city? I've heard just complete, um, you know, a combination of shock and, and outrage. I mean, people are 
absolutely appalled at what they're seeing. And at the same time, it, it, it's not, at the moment at least, breaking anyone's resolve. I mean, they're just saying that we, now we see why we have to do everything we can to stop this and to stop what's happening now in Kharkiv. And is, you know, it may well happen in other cities that are being surrounded by Russian troops. We have to stop this spreading west and we have to stop this taking over the country. And they're still, I think we should emphasize at this point, as far as we know, they do not have control of Kharkiv. This is still bombing coming in from, from well outside the city. And there's street fighting uh, on the outskirts, as far as we know. And we're regularly seeing pictures of Ukrainian forces uh, defeating and driving back Russian units as they try to move into these cities. So, you know, the fight is absolutely fierce. And, and, and I would expect that to continue as, as this carries on. Everyone's also been hearing about this more than 60 kilometre long convoy of tanks and Russian soldiers, which is making its way towards Kyiv. Uh, so it appears that the fighting in the capital will intensify very soon. There have been no attacks on the city centre yet, as you've mentioned. But what do you think could happen when this convoy arrives? How prepared is the city for that? Well, it's, you know, it's hard to know about the city's defences. We just don't know. I mean, certainly... Um, Military analysts around the world, I think, are saying that the Ukrainians have put up a really good fight so far and they've done everything they can to hold the forces back. We would imagine that lots of preparations are going into defending Kyiv. Um, we'll see how effective they can be. A lot of it depends, I suppose, on how much force the Russians use. If they wanted to, they could, you know, almost oblit they could obliterate parts of the city with missile fire. I find that hard to imagine. But as we do see these escalations in places like Kharkiv, you know, more and more horrible scenarios become possible. There's definitely a willingness to fight. I mean, what it comes down to, we don't know whether they will try, whether the Russians will try to besiege the city and um, demoralize people here, whether they will try to launch a major attack, whether it will be kind of skirmishes on the outskirts. We don't know. I mean, I just think whatever, uh, what we've seen from Ukraine's defense so far and what I've experience speaking to people and the sense I've got of their spirit and determination is that Kyiv will put up an enormous fight if it can. What about the images we've started seeing of some of the weapons that Vladimir Putin has in his armour, such as thermobaric bombs that cause death and terrible injuries? I mean, some observers are worried that Ukraine's success in repelling the early waves of the attack might just result in Putin turning to these weapons for the next step. I mean, spirit and determination can only get them so far in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, we just, we just don't know what he is ready to do to establish control here. I mean, one thing that I, I sort of hope that I cling on to is that, and I think this does put Putin in a difficult position, is that he's sent forces into Ukraine claiming that he's somehow a liberator. His whole argument, we've heard this building and building for years, is that Ukrainians and Russians are, are brotherly nations. And that if just the Ukrainian people could be somehow relieved of this pro-Western government that they've got, then the Ukrainians and Russians would be great friends again, and they would welcome a close relationship with Russia. That's how he's been selling this for years. And that's, in a way, how he sold this, this invasion. Once again, I would like to underscore that Ukraine is not just a neighbor, neighboring country to us. It is an inherent part of our own history, culture, spiritual space. They are our comrades, relatives, not only colleagues, friends, but also our family, 
people we have blood and family ties with. I mean, even for Putin, with his propaganda machine, which is telling, you know, outright lies about what's happening now to the Russian people, I don't know how even he could cling on to that argument, any shred of that argument, if he was to severely damage, to bombard a city like Kiev, which is, you know, probably the most historic city in the Eastern Slavic world. You know, how could he claim to be the defender of this 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 big culture, this big civilization, as he puts it, if he's at the same time destroying the heart of that culture. I hope, I really hope that that, that stops him or stops his generals or stops someone from doing the worst to Kiev. But at the same time, as you mentioned there, I think that reluctance may be kind of vying for superiority in his thinking with this frustration over the strength of the resistance and the lack of success that uh, this campaign of his has had so far. We may well see in the days ahead. We can only hope that the worst scenarios don't don't come to pass. Our people are very much motivated, very much so. On Tuesday, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, gave an impassioned speech via video link to a packed-out European parliament. MEPs wearing blue and yellow T-shirts and badges gave the Ukrainian leader a standing ovation after he made an emotional appeal for support from the European Union. We are fighting for our rights, for our freedoms, for life, for our life. And now we're, boring for, we're fighting for survival. Zelensky called on the EU to allow Ukraine's immediate entry into the European Union under what he described as a new special procedure. In the European Parliament, MEPs voted by 637 votes to 13, with 26 abstentions, to condemn Russia's violence in Ukraine and call for tougher sanctions. Our Brussels correspondent Naomi O'Leary was there. Naomi, how significant is this vote? What this vote is, is it is a huge statement. It's a big political statement. The purpose of it is to say we stand with Ukraine and to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It felt historic. The Ukrainian ambassador to the EU came in the visitor's gallery and the whole session started off by everyone in the chamber, hundreds of people turning and giving him a standing ovation. The Ukrainian flag flew at the head of the chamber and people spoke passionately we heard from Ursula von der Leyen, Charles Michel, Roberta Metzola, Josep Borrell, all the key leaders of the EU. Thank you to all of you who are here. Thank you to all the Ukrainians who have joined us today. Thank you for being here. I would like to first start by saying that Europe is with you today. We will be with you tomorrow and we will not leave your side. And they talked about how... This was the moment when people realised what it meant to be European. There was a sense of solidarity there and there was a feeling like it was causing old taboos to just fall away. European security and defence has evolved more in the last six days than in the last two decades. Ursula von der Leyen said something like there's been more of a change in EU security and defence policy in the last six days than there was in the last 20 years. Most member states have promised deliveries of military equipment to Ukraine. Germany announced that it will meet the 2%... And Josep Borrell said, I think this is the moment the geopolitical union is being born. 
That means the EU finding its strength as a geopolitical actor. In terms of how the vote all shook out, it was a massive majority in favour. Um, almost every Irish MEP voted in favour. Um, there were two votes against from Claire Daly and Mick Wallace. The text itself had mentions of NATO build up towards the east of Europe, the sending of arms to Ukraine by member states that wanted to do that. It was pretty predictable that, you know, that would be difficult for Claire Daly and Mick Wallace to support. It's the kind of text that many more MEPs would have voted against or abstained from in normal times. But in the circumstances, the overriding concern was to make a declaration of solidarity with Ukraine. And I read the statement by Sinn Féin's Chris McManus, for example. He's also in the left group with Daly and Wallace, and he put out a statement explaining why he had supported it, as did Luke Bing Flanagan, also of the left group, as did the Green MEPs. And what McManus said was that in the circumstances, the important thing was to show unity. If there was division, it would give Vladimir Putin the message that he could continue what he was doing, that, that people weren't going to stand up to him. The overriding political imperative was to make a joint declaration, a tough one, of standing up to Russia and of saying you can't take this by force. You can't take what you want by force. You can't rule by rule of the gun, as Ursula von der Leyen put it. And Naomi, President Zelensky has called for Ukraine to be fast-tracked into the European Union. How likely is it that will happen? Any potential accession to the EU would be years away. It would take a very long process. But there is a sense that this is a transformational moment. There's a caution, you know. I think Charles Michel said we don't want to make promises that we can't keep. But suddenly people realise why it's important for members in the East to want to be in the EU. Like what that dream means for them, a dream of prosperity, a dream of living in a country where there's the rule of law. It's like this lesson, realisation about what Europe is supposed to be, what the whole project is for. Um, and suddenly we're all sort of living through it and it's making people politically brave uh, to reach for dreams that maybe were lost. That's all for today. My thanks to our guests, Dan McLaughlin in Kyiv, Lara Marlowe on the Polish-Ukraine border and Naomi O'Leary in Brussels. You can follow their coverage of the war in Ukraine and coverage from our other foreign correspondents writing about the conflict at irishtimes.com. Today's episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan, Jennifer Ryan and Declan Conlon. In the News will be back on Friday. 